Hey there, everybody. I'm David Bruner, Director of Discipleship at Paley Presbyterian Church. Welcome to episode four of Until the End of the World, Heaven, Hell, and the Possibility of Universal Salvation. I'm glad you're with us. As always, you can find out more about this class. You can find Zoom links to join us, the recommended readings, everything you need on our website, paoliprez.org adults. And if you have any questions, thoughts, or comments, you're welcome to reach out. You can reach me at david.bruner at paoliprez.org. Thanks and blessings. So the first one I wanted to read was Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Um, this is um, from the first chapter of Philippians. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. I'll just read it out loud. I actually have two passages of scripture. So this is the first one. The second one comes right after this. It's, it's about the same length. So they're not too long. Paul says this, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So that's a reading from Philippians, a short one. Um, and here's another reading from the third chapter of the Gospel of John. I bet that the first verse here may be more familiar to some of you. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Okay, um, I'm gonna leave uh, these two passages up on the screen and I can toggle back and forth between them if you'd like. Tell me what, first of all, just what jumps out at you? What are your responses, your thoughts? Um, I've taken the liberty of muting a few people, so let me know. Um, so you wanna be mindful to unmute yourself if you need to but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I think in the, I think in the first one, it said they are condemned, not, and it doesn't talk about eternity, that hell, heaven for eternity, because we can go back to it, because I, I think that's, did I see uh, eternal damnation in there? I don't think I, we did, did we? 
I don't think it's in the Philippians passage. No, right. it, it talks right. about destruction. Destruction, which means there's it's terminal. <laughs> from the, well, from the readings that I got, when we see the word dis, this destruction, it means that it comes to an end. Yeah, that it's consumed, like you, you know, it's consumed. Mm-hmm. So I would say this one uh, tells us that uh, hell is not eternal. It's certainly. Uh, there's terrible punishment, but it's not for eternity. So this is this is where I picked this passage in part because it's where one of our views for today um, finds its biblical footing. So if you look at the reading by John Stott, we'll talk a lot more about this tonight, but mm-hmm. Stott, Stott has a fairly traditional view of hell, except that he doesn't see hell as lasting forever. Right. Um, he thinks it kind of happens and then you're sort of snuffed out and that's that. And one of the things he does is he points to passages like this one mm-hmm. where Paul says, you know, um, here you are in Philippi, you're living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You're striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And you have these opponents. Right. And the fact that you are united For you, this is evidence of your salvation. For them, it's evidence of their destruction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he, we might expect him to describe it in a different way and he doesn't. Mm -hmm. So that's certainly um, a really important aspect of this passage in terms of the study that we're engaged in. Um, What else jumps out at you about either of these passages? So the, the John passage is probably more familiar, right? Mm. But if you look at what follows in verse 17 through 20, <laughs> it's a lot more complicated. Um, and this and the, the simplicity of John 3.16. So there's a lot to notice here. Um, so one of the things I found particularly interesting is verse 18. So... What's going on in verse 18? Predestination, possibly. Okay. Um, so maybe an account of predestination. That's interesting. Anyone else want to take a stab at it? Belief. Belief. Yeah, sure. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, sure. What does it, yeah, it mean to believe? And to believe in the name of the only Son of God. Yeah, that's uh, what did it mean by by believing in the name of? Does it mean they believe in everything that Jesus said about himself, like all yeah. his qualities, all that he has done, more than just the name? Sure. So I, and that and I, he is the the only Son of God. That yeah. he is that he, for whatever the Son of God means, it's like does it say that he is what he did? Jesus did say that the Father and I are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Yeah. So they have to believe all of that. I imagine. I would think if if they say to believe in the name of the only Son of God, I think it's important to know what is meant by that. Also. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, Tony and I, I hadn't thought about that, but um, it makes me think of the Ten Commandments, right? Where one of the Ten Commandments is don't make false use of the name of the Lord your God. And I wonder if there's an invocation of that Jewish sense of the phrase here that 
part of what's going on is they believe in the the name, the nature, the reputation, the character of, of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. Um, part of what's interesting, right, is the Gospel of John thinks of the final judgment as a reality that's already beginning now. And this is, this is something that's very characteristic of John and relatively unique compared to the other gospels. So um, those who believe in the son of God are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned when? We might expect it to say, they're gonna be condemned when Jesus Christ returns and then they're gonna be in a lot of trouble. But no, it says they are condemned already mm -hmm. because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, the light of Christ has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. Mm -hmm. So it, for John, um, the it's almost as though the punishment and the crime are the same thing, right? <laughs> um, like if you refuse to believe in Jesus, boy, you refuse to believe in Jesus. And that's, you know, the, the crime is its own punishment, if that makes any sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when if one of your kids says, dad, am I allowed to bang my head into the wall as hard as I can? You might say, well, no, you're not allowed to do that. And they would say, well, if I did it, would I get a timeout? You might say, no, I think doing that would be punishment enough on its own, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this is one of the places that C.S. Lewis um, references in his book, The Problem of Pain, when he talks about hell. Um, and it was part of our recommended reading for today. So um, what he, the understanding of hell that he advances, as we'll see, has a lot to do with um, the ch characteristic sorts of choices people make and the way those choices are their own punishment. When a person is uh, so unchangeably selfish and proud, um, the, the type of person they become is, the, is God's judgment on them. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's so interesting about this, right? All along our journey, we've been looking at scripture and we see that scripture has a diversity of different images and a diversity of different ways of talking about heaven and hell and salvation. Um, and that's not to say that anything goes, it's just to say <laughs> there are, there's diversity there. And it's worth our time and effort to study scripture because the more we know, the better equipped we're going to be. Mm -hmm. um, any final thoughts about these passages in relation to our theme for today? The condemned part, it doesn't mean that God has given up on them. Does it mean, is it just that, you know, as you said, their, their crime is their own punishment mm -hmm. and that's the condemnation what is meant by condemnation there sure. but when it says they are condemned already by what they have done they themselves have condemned themselves it's not really that god has given up on them right so um i think the gospel of john is and um 
So the Gospel of John has two thoughts in its head simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So one of them is that when you meet Jesus in the Gospel of John and you make a decision about who he is, um, you've already um, experienced final judgment, as it were. Um, On one hand, final judgment is happening right now whenever you meet Jesus. On the other hand, there are characters in John's gospel who meet Jesus and do not believe in him at first, who later change their mind. Yeah. So it does leave the door open for a first encounter um, and then later repentance and change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is, which is really important. Yeah. Thank you. Thank but- you. And am I wrong in in uh, reading in John John uh, that the idea that uh, some don't see, can't don't believe because they can't believe because their God just from etern- from when they were they were created they were not the elected to believe. Yeah, I mean we'd have to pull up particular passages of John and take a close look. Right. I um. I don't tend to read okay. on that way. So mm-hmm. there's, I would say, I think there's a lot of um, divine choice talk in the gospel of John. So in, in John, Jesus can say, you did not choose me. I chose you mm-hmm. apart from me. You can do nothing. That's, mm-hmm. that is definitely there. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. In terms of turning that into a full-blown doctrine of predestination, some people going to heaven, some people going to hell before anything has started going, I tend to not want to read it that way. Okay, Although good. Augustine and Calvin and Jonathan Edwards would say I'm wrong. Okay. Well, I, I like your version. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, you're always allowed to agree with me in this class. So that that is uh, is wonderful. Um, someone hey, else. Dave, I have a question um, about the Philippians passage, yeah. and I'm I've got the message open because if any other version says it in ten words, the message says it in 152. Um, <laughs> but the verse, I don't know what verse it is. It's in between 17 and 36. But sure. it's there's far more to this life than trusting in Christ. There's also suffering gift as as the trusting you're involved in the same kind of struggle you saw me go through which you are now getting an updated report in this letter and this this may be like way off base here yeah but i'm thinking christ ascended into hell and was was in hell and came came back from that is is that in any way? Oh dear, I'm not. I'm not saying this correctly. It's okay. But, just, just spit it out. You got it. <laughs> I'm working on it here. Um, that we too may descend into hell, but mm. come back from it. Sure. Um, that's that's where my mind is kind of in this loop right now because I kept reading that and going, wait, it was clearer a minute ago <laughs> than sure. it is right now, but. There's far. There's also suffering for him, and the suffering is as much as a gift as the trusting. So our suffering is as much a gift as trusting. So does oh. that extend into hell? I guess I'm sure. 
That's I don't know what I'm asking, but I'm really oh. confused. <laughs> so it seems like part of what you're asking is, okay, so Paul talks about the privilege of not only believing in Jesus, but of suffering for Jesus. Right. Which is pretty arresting, right? We don't usually think, we don't usually think of suffering for Jesus as a privilege at all. Um, no, thank you, Jesus. I'd rather avoid that if that's at all possible, right? And part of what I hear you asking is, okay, if if Jesus descends into hell and he's proclaiming, as it says in the creed, right? And as it says in Second Peter, is are Christians in some way <laughs> imitating him, right? And, and doing the same thing um, through their suffering. Um, this, I think this is a really interesting question. Um, so what I would say, and this is just a shoot from the hip response, right? So I think on one hand, the work of Jesus Christ is unique. And that's part of what we find in scripture, right? Hebrews has a lot to say about this. Um, Romans has a lot to say about this. Um, so it's not as though, you know, it's not as though Christians can themselves, you know, salvation is not a team sport in that sense, right? It's not like Jesus scores 40 points in the game and then a Christian comes off the bench and scores an additional 10 points in, in any way. Um, so if Jesus went to hell and proclaimed the good news to the spirits there, we don't need to do that. That's not something we have to repeat. And yet, and yet, I think the issue is, you know, what does it mean to suffer for Christ? I think often those who wind up suffering for Christ do so because they go to hellish places on this earth um, or places that are regarded as God forsaken and witness to Jesus Christ in very concrete and powerful ways. So I think there's, if that makes any sense, I think there's a sense in which we, we, don't, we don't do exactly what Jesus did, but we're imitating him. Um, we're doing the same sort of thing, even though it's not the same holy perfect work as the one that he's engaged in. Does that, does that make sense when I put it that way? I guess it's still all kind of swirling through my brain. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what I was asking, except that I was, I was, I, I was putting the, the suffering in uh, trying, trying to connect with the suffering, I guess, in some way. And what you're saying makes a certain amount of sense. I don't know if that's what I was asking. So I'm going with it. Yes, that answers my question. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Keep marinating on it and we'll, we'll follow up and talk some more about it. Um, okay, so I have some, um, thank you for reflecting on this scripture with me. Um, we'll talk more about um, scripture this session. Um, what I wanna do now is play some music as I've done off and on for the last couple um, weeks. So we have two different views today. And for a minute, I thought I was gonna play two different songs, um, but I, I, there were two problems. The first is that I couldn't think of one song for each of the two views. And the second was that I didn't know if I had time to play two different songs. So um, 
it's actually harder than you think to come up with songs about damnation. Um, I, who, uh, perhaps this is a good thing. Um, but I thought of one song that is not, it is not a Christian song at all per se, um, but I think it's strangely appropriate for what we're going to um, talk about uh, tonight. So now I'm not gonna introduce this song except to say, I think most of you should know it, uh, unless you've been, some of you might not, but it, it, it's a very, very popular song.
they feast. They stab it with their stealing eyes, but they just can't. to stop it there what follows is another 90 seconds of amazing shredding guitar solo but um in the interest of time i thought i would stop us there so how many of you heard had heard that song before several of us so by the eagles one of the most popular rock bands of all time certainly one of their most famous songs so all right what's what's going on in that song what is that song about? Could it could it be drugs and um, evil? <laughs> sin? Drugs and sin? Yes. I mean, so certainly that's a large part of what it's about, right? So does anyone want to amplify on that? What, why do you agree with Lou? What do we think the, what do we think the speaker is getting at in, in describing this song? Well, I, what I'd like to continue with that is there, the temptation of drugs and and he wants to get out, but it's so difficult. Is that because it says you you uh, would say you can leave, but uh, you can stay, but you can never leave. Right. You can check out. Which is under, in other words, you can take a dose where, you know, but you uh, can't leave. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, sure. I hadn't thought about that in that specific way. Yeah, sure. So. Um, Okay, very interesting. So anyone else want to amplify or express a uh, row? Or maybe that he's in hell right here on earth now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, um, in that first verse, right, he's coming into this mysterious place and he's thinking to himself, this could be heaven or this could be hell. Mm -hmm. And um so the song is pretty cryptic. It's pretty mysterious, especially at first. It takes you on a journey. And then towards the end of the song, there is this hard left turn where the narrator's not very happy anymore, right? <laughs> so something's happening and it's not good. The imagery of, um, uh, that I think it was C.S. Lewis who used that uh, with hell, the door knob, like to get out, is on the inside, on the side of hell. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yet, because of the way, maybe we'll go into it later, the way C.S. Lewis explains uh, what hell could be like, or, um, they can't check out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, they can't leave, they can't exit, even though the door is on their side. That's part, yeah. the door knob mm -hmm. is on the side of hell. But they don't want to. Well, that's why he'll probably go to yeah. that later. Mm -hmm. 
So I guess you're right. That was the difference. This is I th that's a really interesting connection, Tony, and that's that that's part of why I I picked it as well. So this is a very 1970s California song. So, um, and it's it that's the culture, that's the milieu that it's about. And if you read interviews with the Eagles and you, people ask them, what is this song about? This is kind of a mysterious song. What's going on? They say, well, it's kind of about, you know, um, fame and excess and sex and drugs and rock and roll and the music industry mm -hmm. and discovering that all those things aren't good for you, mm -hmm. but it's all, at that time, it's already a little too late, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's the song, right? The song is you come to this magical place that seems amazing. There's pink champagne and everybody's dancing and it's beautiful. And then you try and escape and you can't. Mm -hmm. And as I, I think, um, as we're going to see, there are, um, some of the views of hell we're going to see emphasize the extent to which hell is a place that people send themselves. Hell is kind of a cumulative result of the choices people make. Mm -hmm. And the, the, um, the analogy to addiction is very apropos, right? Because, it, you know, everyone, no one starts out as an addict to drugs or alcohol, mm -hmm. but after a certain point as a result of your choices, you no longer, you know, it's very, very difficult to extricate yourself from a dependence on drugs or alcohol. Right? Um, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. So um, this is an important way of introducing us to um, some of the reflections on hell that we'll look at for today. Let me introduce you to our interlocutors. Um, so today we're talking about two, um, British men who lived in the 20th century, John Stott and C.S. Lewis. So I'm assuming C.S. Lewis is a name that's familiar to most of you. Um, had any of you not heard of Lewis before today? Um, yeah, so it looks like he's familiar to all of us. So how about John Stott? Had any of you who had, um, raise your hand if you hadn't heard of Stott before. So yeah, it looks like a few of us. So um, it's a fun opportunity to, to get to know um, both these guys better. So there's John Stott. Um, you can see him there uh, on the right. Um, he's by any stretch of the imagination, one of the most famous and influential thinkers in the evangelical movement of the 20th century. He's a big deal. Um, he was an Anglican pastor in England. Um, he served as a pastor of a church called All Souls Anglican um, in the London area for 66 years. So, so a nice long tenure. It's safe to say he was successful. Um, he always, he was offered the job of bishop several times and he always turned it down. He said, no, I want to remain a pastor and a teacher. That's my calling. Um, and he wrote, um, and he wrote over 50 books, which is really incredible. Um, and he ha had the gift of communication, like a lot of English authors do. He's incredibly clear 
and um, concise in putting forth his ideas. And if you read the recommended reading for today, I think he's relatively clear. He was the primary author of something called the, La the Lausanne Covenant, which is a really important statement on evangelism that was um, produced and then adhered to by a number of important evangelical Christian bodies around the world. So he had a great deal of influence, not only in English speaking countries, but throughout the world. Um, you can see there, he's got those um, binoculars in his hand. He was an avid bird watcher. Um, it's another wonderful thing to learn about him. In addition to everything else, he loved to um, bird, which is cool. And then of course, we've got C.S. Lewis. Um, his photo is in black and white because he lived a little bit earlier than John Stott. He died in 63, so he only lived to be 65 years of age. Um, professor of English, English literature at Cambridge, among other places, an adult convert to the Christian faith. So he didn't, he grew up in the church, he abandoned it as a very young man, didn't return to it until he was 31 or 32, I believe. Um, so uh, had a slightly different experience than, than Stopped did. Um, a very renowned author of both fiction and nonfiction. Um, most well known for the Chronicles of Narnia, of course, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, books in that series. They've sold over 100 million copies worldwide. So, you know, kind of a big deal. Um, he's also the author of books like Mere Christianity, as well as The Problem of Pain, which we read today. He's a very, very well known Christian apologist. So, let me um, explain a little bit about um, the views these two men bring to bear on this topic. So, um, over the last couple of weeks, we have um, um, found it helpful to talk about seven points um, that describe the views of a particular thinker on heaven, hell, and salvation. We're going to stick with those seven points here as well. So um, the first two are the points on which they agree most strongly. So first, hell is actual. Hell is real. Second, hell is severe. It's not a fun experience. 10 out of 10 would not recommend. Um, these are points on which they both agree. Then we get to the points on which they disagree. So number three, hell is ordained by God. So you'll recall from week two that um, Augustine basically thinks, okay, everybody who's in hell is there because God wants them to be in hell. It's appropriate for them to be there. Um, on this point, Stott basically agrees with Augustine. He thinks, okay, hell is a place ordained by God as, as punishment for those who reject Christ. If you read his writings, he's very um, sensitive about this. He says, you know, this is tough stuff. I'm not a fan of talking about this. I get no pleasure out of talking about it. That's how I think of it. Lewis, on the other hand, disagrees. He doesn't bring up Augustine's name in his little article from the problem of pain, but it's pretty clear that he disagrees with Augustine on this point. Hell for Lewis is of human, not divine making. And he thinks this serves as a better interpretation of scriptural teaching than that of Augustine. So they both claim to be interpreting scripture, but they come to different conclusions. Lewis basically puts it this way. By creating human beings, God chooses, in crucial respects, not to be omnipotent. 
That is, God, who is omnipotent in himself, um, places in human hands the power to accept or reject his mercy and forgiveness. So there's a kind of intentional limitation of divine power. And this is a long quotation that I think um, expresses his point of view well. It is objected that the ultimate loss of a single soul means the defeat of omnipotence. So this is Lewis's defense of his own understanding of hell. Someone might say, look, Lewis, if a single person goes to hell, that means God's omnipotence has been defeated because that person has flouted the divine will to save them. And Lewis just says, and so it does. It does mean the defeat of omnipotence. In creating beings with free will, omnipotence from the outset submits to the possibility of such defeat. What you call defeat, I call miracle, for to make things which are not itself and thus to become in a sense capable of being resisted by its own handiwork <laughs> is the most astonishing and unimaginable of all the feats we attribute to deity. And then this is the quotation that Tony alluded to earlier. I willingly believe that, that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. So for Lewis then, hell is definitely not ordained by God or it's, it's allowed by God, but only in a secondary sense. It is primarily and most importantly ordained by human persons who have free will to reject God's redemptive love. That's what he means when he says the doors of hell are locked from the inside. That um, there are certain persons who would rather, um, in effect, remain in hell than be reconciled to God. Fourth point. So here you see, this is where Stott's point of view really comes in uh, to its own. So fourth point is hell is eternal. So remember the, the name we used to talk about the Augustinian view was eternal conscious torment. So not only is hell terrible for Augustine, but it goes on and on forever. Stott says, no, I don't think that's the case. Hell does not refer to eternal torment. Rather, it means destruction. So this is where he alludes to the passage we looked at from first from Philippians 1 earlier, as, as well as many other biblical passages that talk about, um, talk about hell or talk about um, destruction or perishing. So there are some passages in scripture that do talk about eternal punishment or eternal fire, like Matthew 25, but there are other ones that talk about destruction. And Stott says, I think very, uh, with this wry touch, says, it would seem strange, therefore, if people who are said to suffer destruction are not, in fact, destroyed. 
he wants to interpret images about eternal fire or eternal punishment along those lines. That the fire may be eternal, the punishment may be eternal, but the one suffering those experiences is not. Um, he also appeals to the universalistic passages of scripture. So remember last week, we looked at some passages of scripture that talk about, um, that seem to talk about the redemptive work of Christ availing for everyone. And Stott has, knows his Bible well enough to know that those passages are also in there. We talked last week about how there is a tension between some passages of scripture that seem to talk about eternal punishment and others that seem to talk about God's redemptive love for everyone. And Stott says, yes, this poses a problem. The way I resolve that problem is that by saying, um, those who reject God's love and mercy ultimately are um, snuffed out of existence right? They, they no longer exist. And so when the Bible says God is all in all, right, that can be true at the end of all things, because those who have resisted God's love are no longer around. So I'll talk a little bit about um, Lewis now. So that's Stott. So Stott has this view that just says, no, hell is not eternal. So we've I've summarized his view as annihilationism before. Um, and that's a, a healthy way of putting it. So he clearly departs from the Augustinian view there. So Lewis has, has this interesting, slightly more vague view. So as we've already seen, Lewis wants to say, no, hell is not ordained by God. Hell is not ordained by God. It is a result of the twisted choices of the human heart. What happens if some people simply won't give in to God and his love, right? What, what do we do then? Lewis's answer is they are estranged from God's love, right? They are damned as long as they persist in that rejection. How long is that? Well, as long as they continue to make that wrong choice. So when he says the doors of hell are locked from the inside, he clearly means to suggest that there's at least, right, that God is not the one keeping them in there, right? God is not the reason why the damned are in hell. Um, the question is, will the damned want to get out of hell or not? So there's a possibility that hell will indeed be eternal for some people simply because they will um, not have the desire or the willingness or even the capability to embrace God's love and mercy um, at all. There's, he tells a wonderful parable about this in The Great Divorce, which is a work of fiction. How many of you have heard of The Great Divorce? Yeah. Um, a, a few of you, some of you. So um, it's, um, it's a wonderful book. I encourage you to read it. It's really thought-provoking and it is characteristically well-written and filled with Lewis's uh, knowledge of human nature. So it's, it's, a, 
it's a parable. It's a, it's a story. It's a work of fiction. It's set in hell. And essentially it's about a group of people from hell that board a bus to go to heaven. And hell is, hell is not a, um, there are no pitchforks. There are no pits of sulfur. There's no lava. There's no devil with a forked tail. Um, there's no torture. All it is is a very gray, drab, lonely town filled with people who don't get along. And in hell, there is a bus station. And every day, a bus comes to take people from hell up to heaven if they want to go. And there's this one, it's a wonderful story because he shows how people line up to catch this bus, but then several of them drift away and they say, oh, I don't have time to wait for this bus. I'm much too important. And then someone says, oh, I, I'm not gonna get on this bus if that person's going, I can't tolerate it with them. And a bunch of people peel off. And then they get on the bus and they drive to heaven and they get out of heaven and it's to them, it is an agonizing place that they don't want to stay. And so most of them, he, he has, there's this detail of like walking on the grass in heaven is incredibly painful to them. And there's, there's a, a solidity and a reality to heaven that they are unaccustomed to. And so it's this very agonizing place to be. And almost all of the souls that have gone to visit heaven flee and they run away and go back home. And um, there, there are like 30 people that go there and there's like one person that has the courage to remain. And um, through a great feat of sort of agonizing pain, he manages to repent and say, I want to stay here. I want to uh, I want to right my wrongs and make amends and accept accept your forgiveness. And he's able to stay in heaven. So it's very interesting, right? So Lewis is kind of skirting the boundaries in this story, in The Great Divorce, about whether or not hell can be finally be escaped, right? Um, he's, but he certainly leaves the door open that, that some or perhaps most people who are damned will lamentably remain in hell by their own choice because they are simply incapable of um, freely surrendering to God or indeed even imagining doing so. Okay, so we've got four points in front of us here. Let me stop and get your questions and your feedback. There's a lot of information coming at you. What can I make clearer for you? Is everybody tracking with me so far? All right, I'm gonna press on then, and then we'll have some more discussion when we get done with all, all the points. Okay, so let's, let's review. Um, so we'll go back. Okay, so the first two points, hell is actual, hell is severe. They agree on those two. Number three, hell is ordained by God. So Stott has a traditional answer and says yes, Lewis has the more innovative answer and says no. Um, number four, hell is eternal. There are more differences here. Stott has a firm no, definitely not. Um, Lewis says yes, probably, 
or yes, mostly. Um, number five, hell is penal. So remember that for um, Augustine, hell, the, the primary purpose of hell is punishment, right? The hell is where people go to get their just desserts when they have sinned against God and against their fellow human beings. For Origen, our universalist interlocutor, Origen agreed that hell is penal. It was a place of punishment, but the punishment was ultimately redemptive in nature. It was recuperative rather than um, simply about punishment. So here we see some further variations on this theme. Both agree that hell is penal. Stott has a more traditional answer. Punishment is real. It is meted out by God. It culminates in the destruction of the condemned person. Lewis says, at most, punishment might be allowed by God or permitted by God. In another sense, certainly in the most important sense for Lewis, the punishment is in fact meted out by the human person themselves. Their choices make them the person they are. So this is where we get back to John chapter three from our um, discussion at the beginning, right? So Lewis explicitly alludes to this passage and he says, you know, we don't have to think of hell as a judgment imposed by God from the outside. In fact, quite the opposite. We, we may think of, um, of hell as something impo imposed by the person on themselves. The bad man's perdition, his damnation, is not a sentence imposed on him, but the mere fact of being what he is. And this in turn shades the last two points of our schema. Hell is just, both agree, albeit in different ways. And the last one, hell is inscrutable. So one of the toughest nuts to crack in the Augustinian perspective on hell is that hell is the most severe imaginable punishment and it is still ultimately very mysterious. And both Stott and Lewis are demurring from that mystery surrounding hell that you find in Augusta. So Stott, for instance, by positing that um, condemned sinners are ultimately destroyed, he does away with the idea that there is a disproportion between crime and punishment in hell. So some universalists complain that the idea of eternal hell doesn't make any sense because all sin is of a finite nature. And there's this concern that eternal punishment is simply disproportionate, right? So, you know, imagine if I steal a loaf of bread and a, a judge punishes me to 200,000 years in prison, someone would say, okay, he's guilty of the crime, but that's a disproportionate punishment. Similar concern here. Stott does away with that. Similarly, Lewis does away with an element of mystery that's in Augustine. Lewis does away with the mystery of why God saves some and damns others. The answer for, for Lewis is that, you know, God is only letting the person make their own choices. God is respecting the freedom of the human person. 
and, and saying, okay, if you want it that way, you can have it that way. There's a wonderful quotation from Lewis. I think it's in The, the Great Divorce, the novel that I was alluding to, where the narrator says, in the end, there's only two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And those, those to whom God says, all right, have it your way. <laughs> so the, the, the ultimate choice is between submitting to God or, or God respectfully submitting to the human person and saying, okay, fine. I will permit you to make this terrible choice. Those are our two views for today. Those are the seven points. What questions do you have? What can I clarify a little bit more? Which of those views do you, what about these views do you like or dislike? Do you jibe with or struggle with? Uh, Dave, on the person that's um, the terrible person that's in hell and uh, the door is open, but he doesn't want to open it. Um, if he lives for eternity, he seems like he's happy in the milieu that he's in. Yeah. And it just, so if he goes on for eternity, but that would be like he's he's happy about that. So is that really punishment? Sure. So I thought we Tony and I, when we read that, we thought that uh, Lewis said something about he would he would just drift away like he would he would cease eventually cease to exist because of that internal destruction that of himself. Um, that was thought. So, Maybe that was no, Scott. no. That was Lewis. So uh, with Lewis, I thought that each person. Uh, I thought Lewis had said that like <laughs> each person was like a slave to his own passions, to all the evil that he would want right. to do. Like he, each person was a total, the consummate narcissist. Right, right. That's, that's, that's the thing. And so since each one is so wicked and thinking so much about giving to all his passions, to himself, to all the evil, yeah. then they, it's a terrible place for each other to be. Because they're each, they're all narcissistic and narcissistics don't get along. It's a place where it, <laughs> it would be a punishment. Huh? That's right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think, so your question, Lou, is partly of if hell, as Lewis pictures it, can really do justice to, um, can really make the hardened sinner aware of the wrong they have committed. Um. And I, I, so I think Lewis is very, is, is very good. I mean, I, I think what he's going to say is um, truly um, for Lewis, I think the, the hardened unrepentant sinner in hell would both be totally miserable mm -hmm. because they are completely self-centered. They're incapable of fostering lasting relationships. They've reduced the entire grand scope of human life in a world created by God and built for communion with God and with others, they've all reduced it down to me, 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 right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to be totally miserable mm -hmm. and they're going to be completely incapable of imagining or pursuing anything that's really better. Okay. And is but, it be, oh, well, would that be eternal, but would that be eternal? So th this is the point about which, so if you read the reading from The Problem of Pain, that was the, the, the shorter reading, the recommended reading, he, he just says, yes, it's, it's eternal. They, they will not be able to imagine a different. Right. Well, that's the question. Okay. And, you know, he says, 
um, what does he say? He says, um, every good teacher knows that sometimes there's no point in giving a test more than once, <laughs> right? Um, you know, this, the, sometimes the student takes the test and fails the test, and that's that. Um, if you read The Great Divorce, it, it is more blurry. So, you know, perhaps he's sort of saying one thing over here and a slightly different thing over here. You know, The Great Divorce is a, it, there are some people that make it out of hell in that story. I, perhaps he's interested in leaving it rather ambiguous. What else can I make clearer to you? Dave, it yeah. seems that C.S. Lewis is certainly a proponent of free will. Yes. What is what is Stott's position on free will? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm actually not sure. So it doesn't come up in the reading for today. And I'd love to look into it a little bit more and find out if he was more in line with Lewis's point of view or if he was more in line with Augustine. That, that's a good question and I don't have an answer for you. This is making me think about the free will part. And the fact that we make our own choices and it reminds me of parenthood because we yeah. have consequences for our actions. Yep. Uh, but it doesn't really seem that different when I really think about it because if God does judge who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, it, it would still be based on our actions. Right. And, um, and there's so many gray areas from a really horrible person to a person who's just done a few things wrong and, and who, and only God could judge how bad that is, yeah. where they should go and for how long. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know that this changes what I've been taught that much, sure. uh, um, other than the fact that it may not be eternal. Because um, I've always been taught it was eternal. Um, okay. That gives me something different to think about that I never right. thought about. And 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 from what I read of God, I mean, yeah, I could see him doing that, you know, not making it eternal, um, <laughs> which is kind of a nice, again, as a parent, you know, you, you do that. You give the child another chance or, you know, have them learn. Um, but I guess, you know, we really won't know that till we get there. Yeah. I think that maybe uh, C.S. Lewis, was it C.S. Lewis who mentioned the idea of duration, that Jesus speaks not of duration, but of finality mm -hmm. right. of hell? Yeah. Right. Like, like a, like there's, is there a slight difference in, in saying that? Like the idea of time might not factor in or it's not relevant, it's not in the equation. The time as we see it here right. on earth is different. Yeah at that time it, yes. it's viewed differently or it's non-existent it's it's a different like that dimension of time right uh is it is it is it valid to speak of the dimension of time when it comes to you know the, the last day or the judgment day or so life yeah, outside of this this is this is very interesting right he essentially says earthly time is like a line Right. Yeah, we could. Time in the afterlife is like a three-dimensional figure, right? Mm -hmm. So they're they are not entirely dissimilar because every three-dimensional figure is composed of lines, mm -hmm. but the the line is only two-dimensional, right? Um, so that's a way that he 
Um, that's a way that he responds to some concerns about his understanding of heaven and hell and specifically about the idea of eternity, right? Um, Dave? So, yeah. What do we do about the argument that the evil man rejoices in his evil and finds it satisfying and good? Um, he's, he's not punished exactly yeah, that's by his conduct, but I think we could, if we put our minds to it, we could think of evil people who seemed to rejoice and be glad, <laughs> rejoice yeah. and be glad in their yeah, sure, soul. sure, yeah, th that's a good question. Um, so this is one of the places where I find Lewis most effective. Um, so he's, he, I mean, he really is, a, he's a very effective apologist. I don't always agree with him, but I think he's, he has a lot of uh, very helpful points. One of, the, one of the things he says is, you know, imagine, imagine just this sort of person. Imagine a very sinful person who you know, makes it through life and experiences no consequences of their sin. Yeah. And, and they, they go to their grave just sort of laughing and chuckling at God and neighbor and thinking, oh, you schmucks, I got one over on you. Ha, 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 ha. And then they pass away, right? Um, and part of Lewis's point is to say, he sa what does he say? He says, pain plants a flag in a rebel castle so the the revenge is a revenge is obviously a a base instinct that should not be indulged by the christian he says but what is the grain of truth in the desire for revenge is to make the offending person feel the wrong yeah. and you know he essentially says punishment does that it plants the flag in the rebel castle and forces them to really forces the offender to say aha okay I'm, I'm, i've done something here so i think lewis would say yes so that's why we need some notion of hell is because just that is because of just that sort of person so lewis is probably the most He's probably, uh, of the two, I think he's more, um, I think he's more winsome. I find him more persuasive. Was anyone a, a bigger fan of Stott between the two of them? Yeah. So let, um, and of course, many of you are probably um, learning about them for the first time, which is also fine. Let me, we've got about 15 minutes left. So let me share some concluding thoughts, okay? So first of all, Just um, an acknowledgement. This is probably the messiest point of our class. <laughs> and what I mean by that is we've gotten three of our four views on the table. Um, and I haven't been particularly directive in terms of saying you should believe X and not believe Y. I'm going um, over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to begin to move towards a greater degree of resolution. Also, I want you to be aware that the last week, week six of this class, um, is all devoted to tying up loose ends and trying to give us a place to land as a group.
So if you're feeling a little bit at sea, don't despair. Um, in the interest of helping you along, I'm gonna provide some closing thoughts now from my point of view. Um, these and $5 will buy you a latte, so your mileage may vary, but for whatever it's worth, I'll share my own point of view. Okay. Why do we put these two views together? These quite divergent views, right? In one view, sinners are sent to hell and destroyed. In the other view, um, sinners are sent to hell, but they also send themselves to hell and maybe they can get out. They're divergent in many ways. The thing they have in common is that they are efforts to retain the basic outline of the Augustinian picture of heaven and hell while tempering it in various ways. So we saw in week two, the Augustinian picture is, is, the, um, is the moonshine whiskey of Christian theology. It is white lightning, uh, it is very powerful, but also very bitter. <laughs> and most people don't like it. <laughs> um, and so what you see is that both these modern thinkers, 20th century guys, are trying to do justice to scripture and to the tradition while also doing away with some of the features of Augustinian theology that they find unpalatable or unbiblical. And that's um, much of modern theology. Much of modern theology works the same way. Um, if you read Hunsinger's article, when he gets done talking about Augustine, he notes this fact. He says, starting in the 19th and continuing in the 20th century, there's an effort to retain the idea of hell, but change it so that it is less, less, fearful or that not it is not as directly god ordained um, and i i think he is correct in that okay um of the two i find lewis's account more compelling than stott's um stott tweaks the augustinian account so that damnation is not eternal so there is a a truly terrible sort of punishment but it it has a limit it's sort of like a cosmic death penalty, right? So instead of an eternal um, experience of torment and pain, it does have a limit. Lewis, I think, goes further and is so more interesting because he changes the Augustinian account so that hell is not divinely ordained. God doesn't want people to go to hell, but God is in a position of respecting human free will. So because I am, so Lewis is a good advocate of the free will tradition in Christian theology, which is noteworthy and respectable. Um, I am more Lutheran and reformed in my, in my theology, which means I am more skeptical about free will. So this is where my disagreement with Lewis takes off. Um, so I'll, I, I'll throw out a few thoughts and then we'll, we'll continue this discussion next week. So Lewis's defense of hell turns on a certain account of free will, right? So to be forgiven by God means to repent 
to repent means to engage in free self-surrender. Um, it means to say, all right, God, I've messed up. I, I want to accept your forgiveness. Please save me. Um, probably the, the same sort of thing that Lewis said when he entered the faith as a 31-year-old. That means for Lewis that God cannot or will not force someone to accept the forgiveness that he offers. That's where the whole idea of people sending themselves to hell comes from. Um, so these issues of grace and free will are closely tied to the issues of heaven and hell in Christian theology. If you want to picture them, you guys know what a Venn diagram is, right? The two circles that overlap. So if you want to picture, you know, grace and free will is one circle and heaven and hell is another circle, they kind of overlap a little bit. They're not the same thing, but they have a lot of common territory. There's a, there's a particular account of hell that is based upon a particular account of free will. Both Augustine and Origen would disagree with Lewis here. So for both thinkers, for God to be God means that omnipotence cannot ultimately be defeated. So when Lewis says, yes, if there's a single person in hell, that means that omnipotence is defeated. He says, yes, that's just the name of the game. When God creates dependent, finite creatures, he endows them with the possibility of rejecting them. Um, and that rejection might, might horribly be utterly final. Um, what would Augustine say? Augustine would say, nope, like even the damned person does not win out over God because God, it is God's um, decision to allow them to suffer their just deserts and so um, be damned, right? So for Augustine, um, there's no, uh, divine omnipotence is never flouted or defeated, so too for origin, right? Because even the hardened sinner goes to hell and suffers these terrible, but ultimately redemptive pains in hell so that they may one day be set right and sent upstairs to heaven. So because I am a little bit closer to the Reformed and Lutheran tradition, more skeptical of free will, I, I find these, um, I'm sympathetic to these hypothetical criticisms of Origen and Augustine. Um, so I, I demure from Lewis on this point. Specifically, I prefer Bart. So every week Bart has been, you know, coming closer and closer and he's getting closer and closer. And next week, Karl Bart is going to ride over the, the hill on a white horse, um, hopefully, and um, <laughs> be my preferred point of view. <laughs> okay, so let me stop there for a second. So does all that make sense so far? Are you with me so far? Okay, so let me try and land this plane. So um, the wider theological tradition that begins with Augustine and which continues in our own Presbyterian tradition. So the tradition of John Calvin, John Knox, Jonathan Edwards, doesn't think of freedom as something that fallen human beings have in relation to God. 
So freedom is not a capacity that fallen people have in relation to God. Their will is bound by sin and which delimits their options. So they, they will, unless and until God intervenes and gives them the Holy Spirit to turn their decisions around, they will freely choose to go on sinning because that's the sort of, um, that is the power of, a, of sin working in their life. So you can see it says your story about Felix. So an illustration from my dog's life might be relevant, right? So we know that Felix loves to chew stuffed animals. Um, and we have three kids under 10. So we have a lot of stuffed animals in our house. And we've had to sort of um, put in a discipline of putting all stuffed animals up high on shelves so that the dog can't chew on them. Um, and if he finds one, he will destroy it utterly, right? Our dog is an annihilationist when it comes to stuffed animals. So left to his own devices, right? If we leave him at home alone all day and there's one stuffed animal on the floor, he is, he is just going to eat the stuffed animal. There's no question of choice about it. He doesn't have the ability, he doesn't have the capacity, right? To say, should I eat the stuffy or not, right? What are my options here? Inst what if instead of eating the stuffy, I did the dishes instead? Hmm, let me think about that, right? Now, dogs are dogs and people are people. The analogy does not hold in many ways, but the point of the, um, the more skeptical bound will tradition that I am advocating for here has been to say, freedom is not something that human beings have in relation to God until God gets involved. True freedom is not the ability to choose God or not God. It's the ability to respond to what God has already done in Jesus with faith. And that sort of freedom is always a gift of the spirit, not something that people just have by walking around. And you can see here some quotations from scripture that, that gesture towards this point. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Um, you can see from 2 Corinthians 3, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So when the Holy Spirit comes along, that's when we're finding freedom. So if you read Hunsinger, for instance, his own point of view falls very much along these lines. So I asked myself at a couple points, gee, why doesn't Hunsinger include Lewis in his article on heaven and hell? He includes Stott, but he does not put Lewis in, even though Lewis is probably one of the most famous, renowned accounts of heaven and hell. And I think the answer is because Hunsinger is um, disinterested in the free will defense that Lewis offers. <laughs> it's too much free will for him and not enough of the, the bound will. So... This point of view often arouses objections. I hope you'll ask questions about it, but it's, um, it's where I'm calling from and where the reformed tradition often calls from. When we get to Karl Barth next week, 
Um, he's a proposal, I think, that um, modifies the Augustinian tradition in different ways while retaining that Augustinian accent on divine grace and divine sovereignty. So that's why I've been gesturing towards him throughout the course as, as sort of a, an important voice for us to listen to. Um, okay, that was a lot of content. What can I um, make clearer to you and what comments and thoughts do you have? Dave, to me on the previous thing that you said, yeah. to me it still sounds contradictory. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. If, if God predestines that you're not going to, that God predestines that you're not going to accept Christ. Now you're saying that's not true. So that God, I, 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 I just, right. right. It's contradictory. So um, there's, it's helpful to think of it as two separate issues. So one is the issue of free will. So I think left to our own devices as human beings, we don't have the ability to choose to make a decision for Jesus. And so when Lewis says, God simply has to respect the decisions of his human, of his human creations, I think, well, somebody ought to tell Paul the apostle that, right? Because God didn't respect Paul's decision. God just said, all right, and knocked him off his horse. Um, and you know, Hunsinger gets on his reformed high horse about this in his own article. And he says, yeah, well, you know, what about Joseph and his brothers, right? Or, you know, what about Pharaoh in the book of Exodus? All these people whom, you know, who were, were not engaged in an exercise of deciding whether or not to respond to God. They were just compelled by the spirit. So on the issue of free will, I'm very sympathetic to the reformed Augustinian position that says, nope, people don't, people don't have free will in relation to God unless God gives them the gift of the spirit. On the issue of predestination, um, the Augustinian reformed position has said, look, there's two kinds of people, sort them into two buckets. One bucket is going to heaven and the other bucket is going to hell. And on that position, I say, no, I don't think that's true. And uh, that's part of Karl Barth's contribution to the reformed tradition. He's the one who says, we can have this account of divine grace without having that account of predestination. And we can have this account of divine grace without drawing the apparently necessary conclusion about two groups of people in two different buckets going to heaven and hell. Does that answer a little bit? Yeah, it helps. It's helpful. So when God or the Holy Spirit intervenes and the person accepts God's grace, isn't that a kind of free will because you can accept it or not accept it? Yeah. It's only the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to know that. Yeah, so I, I think it's the, it is the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to respond wholeheartedly to God's invitation, right? So, yeah, uh, so what Paul says is no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So part of the reason I'm convinced by this 
more reformed position is because of passages like that in scripture. So when a person responds to Jesus, whether it's a sudden instantaneous process or a very gradual process happening over time, I believe that's the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, which then empowers them to freely obey God and respond to God in a way they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And that Holy Spirit has this available to all of humanity, to all who have heard the message about Jesus, the gospel message then? Or is this Holy Spirit only, no, then it would be predestination if the Holy Spirit doesn't make it available to all of humanity. I mean, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. <laughs> you guys, you guys are knocking on the door of next week. This is great. So, okay. so all these, all these questions are designed to lead us in exactly the direction that you're walking in. So, um, so God's I believe, and this, this is just Dave talking for Dave, so I believe God's desire is for everybody to be saved, and that may well happen. Um, God has not yet, most of the time when a sermon is preached, God does not give, people, give everyone grace to believe right then and there, right? So if a, a skeptic walks in and listens to a sermon, they may, they may hear it and not think, not think anything special is happening. But if they do come to believe, that is the Holy Spirit at work in their life. Doesn't God know ahead of time, though, who is going to accept the Holy Spirit and who isn't? This is... This is a whole... Yeah, it's like all knowable. He knows from... With my, with my marketing <laughs> class, I talked about this. I talked about slowly it's like theology is like a uh um it's like a swimming pool and you're all you've got your water in the pool and i'm slowly trying to pull all of you into the theology swimming pool with me and so i love that question because it's a very theological question so yes in the history of the church there is an enormous there is a running debate that crops up every couple hundred years about this very question so does God, um, what, does God send people to heaven or hell? Does God decide to send people to heaven or hell, period, the end, and then grant them faith based on that? Or does God do what you just described and say, I can tell that this person is going to freely choose to have faith in the future, therefore they will be saved. And the same sorts of arguments I just detailed tend to recur in those contexts, right? So some people say, look, we have to say that because that's the only way to make it so that God doesn't send people to hell before they've ever done anything wrong. And other people like me will say, no, that that still ultimately puts the human person's decision in the driver's seat. It makes them the decisive factor in what happens rather than God. So um, it's a very insightful question because it's, it is, um, it's another variation on this theme. Um, Marty, you were going to ask a question. Well, am I muted now? You're not muted. We can hear you loud and clear. All right. Well, it just, uh, it, 
it almost sounds as though God's in charge of deciding who's going to be saved and who who isn't then based on who to whom he sends the Holy Spirit. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, so what about the poor person that would like to be saved but doesn't receive the Holy Spirit? I mean, I thought people were in charge of deciding whether they wanted to be saved, not God. Sure. By sure. reason of what their decision is, if they've you know been given that opportunity. Yeah. It bothers me to think that somehow oh, yeah. the gift of the Holy Spirit is only to certain ones. Yeah. So this this is the this mm -hmm. these are classic objections to the point of view I have just laid out. Yeah. And there are, there are, you know, this is, we're, so this is a home field game for the reformed Presbyterian tradition, right? But if I was at a Methodist church, for instance, with a, with a free will emphasis, or, or if I were at a Baptist church, which often has a free will emphasis, they would, they would say, no, that's nonsense. What are you talking about? I mean, everybody needs to decide for themselves, right? Um, so there are there are a great many Christians that would agree with you. I the place I would start in having a conversation would be to say, you know, look, look at some of what Paul says in First and Second Corinthians, right? So if it's really true that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, God's got to be involved in that process in some way. Right. Obviously, it's it's very mysterious and it involves both divine activity and a human response. But how do we sort out those issues? Can we? I mean, we really can't tell what the the, the idea of sorting them out is not not our job, is it? I mean, that's just I like Lewis. Lewis just calls it a miracle. Remember that you yes. said that. Yeah. Well, you know, God is omnipotent, but yet He allows people to go against Him, yeah. and that's the miracle of of God. That He allows <laughs> He allows people, people to resist His so, free gift. So I love. I, I like that. It's a miracle. It's, it's yeah. we can't explain it, but it's. Just take it as fit, you know. I guess at the end, I, I, I guess I should say this. This is not related to what we're talking about. This is just so about I'm, me that I'm, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm aware that we're going. I've, I've, uh, I got on my theological high horse, and now we've gone over time. So I want to, I want to wrap us up in a minute or two here. But um, Marty, the question you pose is very important. And so, in more strict Reformed tradition the 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 path I am on culminates in that idea of double predestination, right? Where some people are just damned and going to hell and there's nothing they can do about it anyway, <laughs> right? Which a lot of people find very um, unbiblical, right? Um, I'm trying to direct us in a different direction. Um, and so we'll, well, yeah, I'm sure you're relieved to hear. So we'll have a we'll have a chance to talk more about that next week. Okay. Um, God bless you all. Thank you so much for coming. This was a wonderful discussion. So next week we'll spend some time with my friend Carl Bart, um, and we'll hear what he has to say, and hopefully he'll begin to help us put some of these pieces together. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Dave. Thank yeah. you.